God is like an artist who creatively takes media and colors that seem odd and puts them together using techniques that are regarded as radical. In the book of Acts, God took a small band of misfits and transformed them into His church. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, everyday people became teachers, evangelists, and servant leaders. The church grew by the hundreds, people from every profession and socioeconomic background. In spite of their great diversity, their commitment and passion for Jesus radically unified them. They were marked by boldness, generosity, and their love for one another. Although perilous persecution scattered them, the gospel continued to circulate and the church relentlessly grew. What started in Jerusalem spread throughout Judea, across Samaria, and began to consume the world. This is the book of Acts. Uh, in developing this reality of people that he is going to indwell, that is, he's, he's going to empower, live in, and then work through as he continues to unfold his story and his mission on planet Earth. And, and we have really had the incredible opportunity to look into uh, the unfolding early story of the New Testament church to discover who it is we really are, because we are the continued story of what God is is showing us here in the early New Testament. And so uh, in, in many ways, the privilege we have to observably watch things unfold is, is a huge deal to me. I mean, God did not have to put the book of Acts in here, but he did. He had Luke write to Theophilus and really unpack for us uh, in an observation style Watch and learn, right? Watch and learn. Because all of us, uh, we can learn from lectures and from information, but really when it's hands-on or when it's observable, that is where we get a holistic learning experience. And so God gives us this incredible journey, and as we've journeyed through the book of Acts, what we have seen is the unfolding story of God working through his people. Uh, he has engaged them with the information on what he's doing with them. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the kingdom of God. I'm going to rescue your soul. Uh, I'm going to make you mine. I'm going to indwell you with the Holy Spirit, empower you to a work. And then I'm going to send you on mission for me. You are going to go on mission and be sent. And then we kind of watch sequentially as that unfolds. The people of God uh, receive their rescue. They're empowered by the Spirit. They become a community. Their identity is solidified. And then they begin to experience life as Christ followers. Miraculous realities and some very difficult uh, struggles. Some are, are even martyred, dying to self, dying for real. So a constant dynamic between God doing incredibly redemptive things and redemption having a high price. And so we see that dynamic. And then the church is kind of scattered from Jerusalem. We watched it happen. Persecution occurs. The church scatters from Jerusalem and the gospel goes with the church and it expands. And as it's expanding into the known world, the powers that be that are against the gospel, they increase because the gospel is getting more powerful in its influence. And so they start pressing in harder. And we get to the place where Herod brings James in, takes his head off. Uh, he is martyred. There's a shockwave through the church. Things start heating up. Peter sort of says, let James, Jesus' brother in Jerusalem, know. He'll know what to do. And we get that first uh, letter written uh, in the sequence uh, of the book of Acts that kind of explains what's happening. You've been, you've been observing but now I'm explaining. And the book of uh, James really explained beautifully what we should know is happening, what God is up to, to give us confidence, to persevere, to continue. And the book of James ends this way. Listen, as you head into the continued unfolding mission, as you continue to live for Christ, uh, seek God's will, pray God's will, do God's will, and you'll see God's will and don't do it alone. Don't do it alone. Uh, stay together, speak into each other. And the book of James ends. And then we jump into Acts chapter 13 and we see a transition from Jerusalem 
to a church outside of Jerusalem in Antioch, and a story begins to unfold in this church, and we see this church actually living out what James described, seeking God's will, praying God's will, doing God's will, and, and then we said, now we're going to jump into a story. I'm very excited about where we're about to go, because really, in Acts chapter 13, there is a massive transition, a huge shift uh, in the direction of what we're observing and learning. Up to now, it's kind of felt foundational. We're just telling us who we are, telling us what God has done, showing us in some ways how life is going to play out. And now in Acts chapter 13, it transitions into the actual mission that we need to intentionally engage on. I remember years ago as a, a student ministries pastor, I took a bunch of students to South America to go build houses for families that didn't have houses. And, and you'd be there for seven days and you'd build hard for seven days. And then a house would be up. And there was a team of 10. And man, it was 12, 14-hour days nonstop. And the first five days, all you did was laid foundation. I mean, it was no fun. Now you're stirring concrete and laying foundation. And after five days, you look at the piece of land that you arrived at five days ago. Looks exactly the same, except that it's a concrete color now instead of just sand. And you go, man, we've got two days left. This is really bad. But then the next two days, walls go up, roof goes on, windows in, house is built, and it's fun. I mean, the last two days, why is it fun? Because what you've been preparing to do actually starts playing out into reality. That's what makes that part so fun. The foundational part is, is great because you know what it's, what it's preparing for, but to actually visually see the house go up, that's awesome. And in some ways, up to Acts chapter 13, what we've been watching is foundational stuff. This is who you are. This is what you should expect. This is what's going on inside of you. This is what's happening in the community. This is what God's up to. Okay, good. Okay, good. That's awesome. That's exciting. But it feels like he's preparing us for something. And in Acts chapter 13, what we have been prepared for is finally going to be realized. And for the rest of the book of Acts, man, it is just watching the walls go up, the roof go on, the windows go in. And so buckle up because it's going to get exciting. Grab your Bibles, turn to the book of Acts chapter 13, and I'll show you where things go from here and what this incredible reality is that we are now going to experience through observing the unfolding story of the early New Testament church. Acts chapter 13, we're going to go to verse 4. If you're using one of the Bibles we provide, it's on page 599. If you're using one of your own Bibles that you brought, it's Acts chapter 13, verse 4. So Acts chapter 13, verse 4, it starts this way. Here it goes. Ready? Here we go. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went. Now, the next word is down to, but let's just stop at they went. Because I, I feel like this is an important place to stop before we do anything else. Because the entire story rests in some ways on, on this first little sentence. The entire story. If you miss this sentence, it really doesn't matter where else we go. You miss everything else. And the two words that I want to show you that are so critical to this story is these two words. They went. I mean, they went. It seems kind of, kind of childish, doesn't it? I mean, of course they went. I mean, they went. But it's not so obvious to say, of course they went. Because I'll be honest with you, in observing our lives, very often we are really good at talking about going, thinking about going, praying about going, having seminars about going, gathering to prepare to go, coming together and worshiping for the going, even sending others out to go, but actually when we have to go into environments that are a little scary and be gospel-centric, carrying redemption into those environments, we go, I'm not ready. I need another course. I need another book. Can you recommend another DVD series? I feel like I'm just, I don't know. Going actually is a big deal. And actually, we don't often do it because we are so busy trying to get through our days and through our weeks and through our jobs and trying to navigate our relational realities and through our marriages and through our parenting years and through everything to try to get somewhere that we actually forget to go. We forget why we go. We just show up and try to get through. And that's actually most of our life. And so actually, the very two words that start this out Sent by the Holy Spirit, they actually went. It's a big deal. 
And part of the reason why it's a big deal is it's not just dealing with this story that we're going to deal with in this weekend, but from now on to the end of the book of Acts, you could start every story the same way. And sent by the Holy Spirit, they went. And then, and then unfold the story. Because the rest of the book of Acts is just a going. It's a going, and a going, and a going. So, so listen, folks. Here's the deal. That thing we've all been preparing for, the thing that the book of Acts is preparing us to see, the thing that Jesus told us he was going to prepare us for, here it is. Ready? We're supposed to go. We're supposed to go. That's our whole life. We're supposed to go. And we shouldn't be surprised by this because Jesus was abundantly clear about this throughout his journey on planet Earth. But specifically, he was abundantly clear about this when he left planet Earth, right before he left. Last words of Jesus. Matthew chapter 28, right? I mean, listen to Matthew chapter 28. These are the very last words of that entire gospel. Matthew 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. End of gospel. There's no other verse. There's no like, and by the way, it's just, look, all of this was about one thing. At the end of the day, as long as you have breath on planet earth, if you know and follow Jesus, you are here to go. You are here to go. In, in, the, in the book of Acts, actually, which kind of um, uh, folds over the end of the gospel. So the end of the gospel and the book of Acts happen simultaneously. It's the same story. Book of Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus speaking. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and, the, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. I mean, there it is. This is Jesus telling us what the inevitable end is. So here's the deal. What we have to realize as we're traveling through the book of Acts, and now as we enter chapter 13 and follow the story of they went, is that in the end, if you follow Jesus and you are discovering a a deeper reality of your rescued soul, that the kingdom of God has been placed in you and you belong to the kingdom of God and your future is the kingdom of God and your life is about the kingdom of God and you are no longer uh, uh, citizens of this world but you are citizens of the kingdom of God, the more you realize that and the more you realize that your identity is wrapped in Jesus now, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me and the life I now live, I live by faith. That's what Paul said. The Holy Spirit has sealed me. The Holy Spirit guides me. The Holy Spirit rules over me. The Holy Spirit is the one in me. The more we realize that, the inevitable end of any Christ follower actually being more captivated by the gospel is that eventually they're going to go. They're going to go because they're going to realize that they're on this planet for mission. You cannot follow Jesus deeply and not figure out at some point, oh, it's not about me. It's not about a better life now for me. It's actually about me living for him until I take my last breath and then it's going to be awesome. We're not going to be going in heaven running around, oh, go on mission. To who? There's nobody. Our only mission is now. We're not going to suffer in heaven. The only opportunity to share in the suffering of Christ is now on earth. And so it's not that God wants us to live a life of suffering. It's that he wants us to understand that part of living on planet earth is being redemptive and speaking redemption, and that will come with suffering. That will come with struggle. That will come with difficulty. And so we are inevitably going to go, and we ought to go. As we get captivated by the gospel, that's what's going to happen. So, as we jump into the story now and we figure out, okay, it seems that it's that time in the book of Acts that's saying to all of us, it's time to go. Let's go. That sounds awesome. I'm inspired. You're inspired. Let's get going. We're going to run out of, the, out of the room here, jump in our cars, start it up. Okay, I'm ready to go. Where, where do you go? I don't know. When you go there, what should you expect? I don't know. When you get there, wherever it is you're going that you don't know, to a place you don't expect anything because you don't know what to expect, what are you going to do? I don't know. And what are the results going to be when you do it? I have no idea. That's not helpful. Is that helpful? That's not helpful. So yay, let's go. Where? When? How? What does it work? What I love about God is that he's given us the book of Acts 
to show us what happens as we live the life he's called us to, and then he'll explain some of it through letters like Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, First and Second Corinthians, Romans, and other places. We'll get to those as they show up in the story of Acts. For now, let's just observe. Let's just see if by watching these guys as they go, we will figure out and extract from the story, oh, that's where we should go. That's how we should go. That's what we should expect. That's what we should do. That's what's going to happen. And you'll be surprised, it's all in here as we observe. So, let's go. Acts chapter 13, verse 4. Ta-da! So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went. Let's just stop there. Now you're going, come on! Can't we get past the they went? This is not even through sentence one. Yeah, but there's such important things right here. We can't move on yet, okay? So we know we're supposed to go. That's great. They went. But the first and most important thing you and I need to remember when we go, always. This is not like part of the expectations. This is a, an absolute that we have to stay true on, fix our eyes on, and never, ever, ever, ever forget if we're going to go on mission for God. Here it is. You ready? Okay. You are sent by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the God of all things. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. The Spirit of God is God. And God is the ruler sovereignly over everything. God is the author of every story. The author of your story. The author of my story. The author of our story. The author of history. The author of every little thing. He authors that stuff. God is the sovereign ruler over all things. He fears nothing. He has no enemy. He has nothing to overcome, and nothing can overcome him. He is not sitting around nervous. He's not sitting around afraid. He's not sitting around worried. He doesn't have to do that, because in any instant, at any moment that he so chooses, he could make everything cease to exist, including the grand enemy that's against him. You think it's like good against evil like the movies? There's Satan, and there's God, and God's a little stronger, and so I think he's going to win. No! No, no, even the enemy of God is a created being sustained only by the reality of God's story that he is writing for his purposes and his glory and his reality that we will understand someday but not now. That's it. So even the enemy himself cannot overcome. This is the one who sent us. The one who's sending us is the one that made promises like, the work I begin in you, I will finish. Promises like all things that are happening in your life, around your life, through your life, and, uh, and with your life will ultimately turn out for the great good that I am producing for those who I have called according to my purpose. See, we have to remember that God sent us. Why do we have to remember that? Uh, so, you know, I've stepped into some stories I'm kind of a risky dude, and so I'm like, whoo, another big story, let's step in. And, and the, the more recent stories I've stepped into turned out a lot bigger than even I thought. And I, I'm a, a pretty grand optimist, so you know, I'm like, oh, it's going to be fine. But, but uh, recently, over the last two or three years, as we've stepped into some bigger stories, it's been like, whoa, this is not so fine anymore. And so uh, I have found myself at times looking at my world, you know, places like my home, that is the sanctity of all things good, right? I mean, the safe place, and then you you bring into that home mission. You're like, woo, let's do it. It's going to be so fun. And then it turns out not to be fun at all. It's crazy and insane. And your wife is dying and your kids are dying and, and, and the kids you brought are dying and everybody's dying. And you're like, oh my gosh, this is terrible. And, and then you look around and you go, this is not going well. I found myself many times sitting in the car and I'm driving in the car. No, no joke. Many times over the last two years. And I just look up and I'm like, this is your fault. Just to be clear, you did this. You asked me to do this. I would never have been stupid enough to get into this story. You said to do it. So here's the deal, just so we can be clear. If this goes south, if this doesn't turn out redemptive, if this ends badly, I'm blaming you. Yeah, I will. I'll walk right into the gate. I'm like, it's your fault. Now, now, now here's the deal. The reason I do that is not because I'm mad at God. I'm not mad at God. I'm just reminding myself that the fact that things aren't going well right now are really nothing to worry about. Because the one who asked me to do this is the author of this story. 
He's the one that has the power to do what he wants, when he wants, how he wants. So I'm just reminding myself, I don't need to take responsibility for this. I need to take responsibility for living redemptively in it and speaking redemption in it, but I don't have to take responsibility for the decision to do it. That was your fault. Because you said, go be redemptive. You said, go find stories and help them. Because you're my ambassador and you're a minister of reconciliation. I believed you, so I'm doing it. And it's a beautiful place to live. It's a free space to live. Because it reminds us that this story's not going south. Because the one who's authoring it and the one who sent me into it is one who actually has the power to do what he wants with it. And even now, even now... At the, toward the end of year two of this particular context of story, we are watching God do some extraordinary things in our home. I mean, really, genuinely, like, like life-shaping things. My wife and me are, are, are changing by the minute into things we never imagined we could be. And I'm, I'm like, it's like you're smelling redemption. You're like, oh my goodness, this is so fun. It took two years to get here, but it's awesome. And that's because when we started, we remembered and we had to remember and we keep having to remember. I didn't get into this because I thought it was a good idea. I got into this because the God that I know sent me and said, do things. Do things that seem impossible. Do things that seem, that seem overwhelming because I'm never overwhelmed, even when you are. So we gotta go, folks. But as we go, we gotta remember who sent us and who is sending us, and who is asking us to go. Because if you don't remember that, you're just gonna get scared regularly and bail. But if you remember, no, 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 no. You see, God sent me, that's good enough. Now, since we're going, and God is sending us, we have our minds set on that, we're like, wow, I'm ready. The next question is, well, where do I start? Where do I go? Let's take a look, let's see what they were doing. So it says this, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went, down to Cilicia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. So that's where the story begins. Saul and Barnabas are sent out by the church by the Holy Spirit, and what they do is they leave Antioch, and here's where they go. When they're sitting around, they simply do this. They head straight down 16 miles south, they jump into a little port town there. They catch a boat. They travel 130 miles southeast to the island of Cyprus. They land in Salamis, which is the closest town to the port that they left. And when they land in Salamis, here's the deal, right? They go straight to the synagogue, the Jewish synagogue, because Salamis was kind of the Jewish hub of the island of Cyprus. The Roman hub of the island of Cyprus was 90 miles southwest of that on the island in Patus, and here's the deal. The island is about 90 miles across, and so you've just landed on an island, you go to the Jewish synagogue, you start preaching the gospel and demonstrating the gospel realities. That's what they did. They left Antioch, they went to Cyprus. So we go, what is it that we extract from this as they go and they take with them John as an assistant? Well, there's a couple of things. Number one, okay, this is kind of a small thing, but it matters a great deal. God put everything into the story intentionally. They took John with them, this is John Mark, and they took him as an assistant. Folks, we're back in the book of James, right? If you're gonna go on mission, if you're gonna go, and you're gonna go sent by God, don't go alone. Never ever go alone. This is not a Rambo deal, okay? You don't get to like, Rambo, take them. No, you gotta have a team. You gotta be with some other people. That doesn't mean you, you always have to drag them with you to work. What it means is that you have to know somewhere out there there's a team of people that I'm gonna be able to regroup with, gather with. They're gonna speak into me, I'm gonna speak into them, they're, they're praying for me. That, that's why we do missional community. So as you're out scattered on mission, when it's exhausting, crazy, and wild, you come back, gather together in missional community, and you know this group of people are with you. They weren't with you physically, but they're with you. And sometimes they're with you physically. Come to my kid's soccer game. Come meet some of my friends. We can do this together. Always do it together. Even Saul and Barnabas. I mean, Saul. If there's ever someone who could have been a Rambo Christian, this is Saul. But he takes Barnabas with him. He takes John as an assistant with him. So they're always in team. And then here's what they do. They go to Cyprus. What's so significant about Cyprus? Well, here's the interesting part. When you dig into the history of all this, guess who's from Cyprus? Guess who grew up in Cyprus? Barnabas. 
Barnabas grew up in Cyprus. That's his hometown. That's his island. That's where he's from. He's in Antioch right now, but that's where he's from. And what do we know about Barnabas so far? Well, Barnabas, honestly, in the New Testament, is one of the most connected human beings I've ever met. I mean, he knows everybody. He is called the son of encouragement, right? So what kind of a guy is Barnabas? He's the kind of guy everybody wants to be around, right? I mean, he's like, oh, it's Bar- oh I'm going to be around Barnabas. So he is the guy that moved around and introduced Saul to every human being that has anything to do with the church. And he had the equity, the relational equity with those people to be able to step in and say, this is Saul the persecutor who's trying to kill you, but he's my friend now. Can you be his friend, right? He didn't just know people. He was connected to people. And so we know Barnabas being son of encouragement, connected to people all around the known world of the church. Uh, what do you think? his life on Cyprus was like. She doesn't tell us here, but I can tell you, based on what I know about Barnabas, I bet the second his boat landed in Salamis, people were like, hey, it's Barney! Barnabas, come on down here, buddy! This is going to be awesome! Let's party on! Because this guy is someone that is highly connected, and if he grew up on Cyprus, then frankly, he knows people on Cyprus. So they go straight to Cyprus, where Barnabas is highly connected, where Barnabas has tons of influence, tons of friends, tons of people. And when they get to Cyprus, they go to the Jewish town first. They go to the Jewish synagogue first because they are Jewish and their cultural context to be able to describe the gospel is most easily unpacked with the group of people that already know the word of God, already understand who God is, already know all the Old Testament prophecies, and already will see the sequence of events that lead to Jesus' coming. So what are they doing? Folks, here it is. You ready? This is like not rocket science, okay? When we're sent out to go, go first to the obvious places. Just go to where it's obvious. What do you mean, Renaud? I think sometimes this is what we think. We're living our life here. You know, we work. We have social networks. We're trying to build our stuff. We're raising a family. We're trying to love our spouse. We're, we're, we're building a career. Whatever it is we're doing over here. And then what God is going to do, he's going to go, I need you to go somewhere. Oh, gosh. Let me check and see how that's going to work out. Okay, I can go. Bloop, out here, go somewhere. Then back into our little life and then doing our little life thing. That's, I think, what we think. Like every time you talk about people going, they're always saying, well, yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm getting ready to go. Go where? On a mission trip, or I'm getting ready to go to this thing, or I'm going to get ready to go to meet this person. And I'm going, listen, listen. Every single minute of every single day, you go somewhere. I go somewhere. This morning, you went to church. Here you are. Welcome. It's great to have you here. After we're done here, you're going to leave here, and you're going to go somewhere. You're going to go to lunch, you're going to go home, I don't know where you're going to go. And then tomorrow you're going to go somewhere again, and then the next day somewhere again. And what this is saying is, listen, wherever you spend the most amount of your time, and you have the most people you kind of know, and you have friendship with, and you feel the most comfortable, your, your hobbies that you do with people, your workplace that you're an expert and they're an expert in, all the common spaces in which you travel with another set of human beings, wherever there are people like that that do not know Jesus, go there first. Just go there. You don't have to find new places to go. Go where you already go. Here's the difference. Here's the difference. As you go, go sent by God this time. Well, how's that different? Most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, most of the places we go that's part of our regular life, we just go to survive, to get through, or maybe to have fun, right? I mean, we go there with the mindset of, I got to go. So for instance, work, I got to go to work. I got to work hard so I can move forward or so that I can demonstrate competency, so that I can continue to keep a job, so I can continue to get a paycheck, so I can continue to provide for a family. So when we go there, we don't go sent of God. We go because we need to go because it has a practical outcome. Even at home, we do this a lot of times. I go home, Why? Because I gotta raise some kids, I I gotta see my spouse, I gotta engage with my spouse, I gotta get some things from my kids and my spouse, I gotta enjoy my home, I gotta relax in my home. There's things to do in the house. I've got tasks to do in the home, I got a garden to make in the home, I got shelves to paint in the home. There are things to do. We don't go sent by the Spirit of God, we go because that's life. And what this is saying is hey, listen, as you go about life to the obvious places that you already go, just go sent this time. Recognize that you, because you know Jesus, are sent into those places and go with the intent of being redemptive and of speaking redemption. Go with that intent. Ask the Spirit of God to give you favor like with Barnabas. Go to the obvious places, 
have people praying for you or going with you to those places. And as you go into them, be redemptive, speak redemptively in the context that you are most comfortable. This, this shouldn't be initially a big, dramatic, horrid, hard thing. Don't go to work. Find the one person at work that hates Jesus and makes fun of you every day and go, that's my mission. Ah, leave him alone. Go to the person that comes to you regularly and goes, um, I'm struggling with some stuff. Would you mind giving some advice to me? Because I, I, I I've seen you live your life wisely. Yeah, there's the person you want to go to. I think sometimes we think God's sending us out to the people that hate us. And our friends, they're just kind of, they like us, so they don't need Jesus. No, that's where you start. Now take a look. That's where it starts. It's not where it ends. So they go, and as they are going through the whole island, so verse 6, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Patus, Patus is 90 miles southeast of Salamis where they landed. That's the entire island. They came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Now, why did they bump into this false prophet? Well, we're about to find out. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus. Oh, so Bar-Jesus is hanging out with Sergio uh, because he is the proconsul. Take a look here, right? Uh, 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 Sergius Paulus was a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. So who is the proconsul? The proconsul is the highest ranking Roman politician in the region. What they did in Rome was because they didn't rule by conforming the entire world to be Roman, but instead they mixed cultures so that Rome would expand in its cultural diversity and the people wouldn't feel like they're losing themselves so that they would be basically uh, content being ruled by an empire as long as they can still be who they are. Here's what Rome did. They would, they would take their senators and some of the senators they would send out to regions to become proconsuls. And the proconsul's job was to watch over the entire region and make sure that the peace was kept there. They were usually uh, people of, of great diplomacy with uh, intelligence, the ability to interact with other human beings of multiple cultures and work through problems quickly. So they were also people that were constantly aware of what was going on in their region. And if something entered their region that kind of seemed like it might become disruptive, it wasn't uncommon for the proconsul to invite them to come and that they could dialogue and say, what are you doing on my island? Okay, how's that going to go for you? Let me find out if I'm okay with this before I arrest you and put you in prison or say, you go about your business. So he gets, he gets wind, I have no doubt, about uh, uh, Saul and Barnabas traveling through the island, preaching this word, the word of God. He's heard about this because, of course, this is a couple of years in from the, uh, the, the Pentecost experience in Jerusalem. The gospel has spread throughout the known world in many ways now, in little bits and pieces. It's created its, its disruption. The Jewish people uh, that are the leadership are still a little bent out of shape about it. Herod doesn't like it. And so the Roman Empire realizes this could be tumultuous. This could create some trouble. Just got to keep an eye on it. Let him be, but keep an eye on it. And so he calls Saul and Barnabas over and he goes, hey, tell me, tell me what you're up to here. Listen, folks, when you are stepping into the obvious places and you are being redemptive in those places, that is that you are acting redemptively and you are speaking redemption. I guarantee you, if you're doing that regularly in your comfortable places, your comfortable relationships, the obvious platforms and circumstances in which you exist, inevitably at some point, whether it's in your workplace, your social networks, your neighborhood, the people that are outside of your comfort zone are going to overhear what you're doing and they are going to engage you. So here's an inevitability you should expect. If you're gonna live gospel-centric in your different platforms of life with the people that are already comfortable, inevitably you're gonna have to deal with the people that seemed at first a little uncomfortable outside of your norm. You're gonna bump into the person at work that's checking in now saying, Hey, I've noticed conversations. Uh, well, tell me about this because I want to make sure we're comfortable here in the workplace with that. You know, that, that conversation. Or that, that person who you know doesn't really like you in the social circles and you don't really like them either, just to be honest. And so you're talking with one of your friends and you're talking about Jesus uh, in some context. And then, you know, they overhear. And so they kind of sneak over a little bit. And before you know it, they're in the conversation. And now you're kind of going, should I change the subject? This is going to be awkward because if I start talking about Jesus, they're argumentative and they're going to start throwing all sorts of arguments my way because my friend likes me, they're not going to do that. And then I don't know if I'll have answers and it's going to get all awkward. So maybe I'll just change the subject to something else. 
See, we're always going to end up in places where the circles outside of our comfort zone enter into our story because they're overhearing what we're up to. And sometimes it's going to be to come check on us, and sometimes it's going to be because they're interested, and sometimes it's just going to be because they like a fight. And it's just going to be the case. So, so be ready for that. Know that that's coming. And when that happens, take a look what comes with it a lot of times. Take a look. It says this. So the pro-council invites them in to come and tell them what's going on. And they're hanging out with the pro-council. And what is Paul doing? Uh, and, I mean, and, and Barnabas doing? It says this. Um, uh, but Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name. That's Bar-Jesus. Opposed them, seeking to turn the pro-council away from the faith. So that clues us into what Saul and Barnabas were doing with the pro-council. Did they change the subject? Did they say, oh, we're just traveling through the island. We're tourists. We're just kind of hanging out. No, no, no. When he invited them and said, what you guys doing on the island? Saul went, well, we're preaching the gospel, the one you heard about. Let me tell you about it. And they started sharing with the pro-council the realities of Christ and the whole story, bringing it together. And this is an intelligent man. He's listening in. He's following Saul's logic. He's going, ah. And Bar-Jesus, who's standing on the side of the pro-council here, he's listening in, and he starts getting irritated, and he wants to crash this whole thing. Why? Because we've just been told about who Bar-Jesus is. Bar-Jesus is a Jew who is also a magician, who is also a false prophet. That's what we found out about this guy. So we know some things about him. It was very common in this cultural context for uh, certain people, both in the Jewish world and in the Gentile world, to get into the magic arts, into the dark arts, because the dark arts produced power. It produced powerful things. You could do things. You could curse people. You could bless people. You could heal people. You could make people sick. So what was that? That was power. And if you had the power and you could influence, then you would step into powerful players in your particular local arena, and you would become influential voices in their life. Bar-Jesus is two things. He is a magician, number one, so we know he had power. Now, some of the magicians during this time were like the magicians we know in our culture. They're not magic people that actually call on the dark arts and have demonic stuff happening. They are people that are very good at illusion, right? It's sleight of hand. That's why whenever a magician comes in, either here to Mosaic or we go see a magician that's coming to town, and people are like, you shouldn't dabble in magic. I'm like, it's not magic. I could do what they're doing if I learned the skills they learned because it's a sleight of hand. It's an illusion. It's a speed at which they do things. It's, it's manipulating the realities of what is real to make it illusion. That's not magic. That's fun. But... Do not be deceived. Is there real magic? Absolutely. Are there people that aren't doing magic through illusion, but are doing magic through power? Yes. That's biblical. And some of the magicians, when they were called magicians and their name was magician, what they did is they would use potions and amulets and crystals and, and, and chants and all sorts of other things to entice and invite the demonic world in. And then the demonic world would give them power so that they could gain control, so that they could be controlled. They didn't know they were being controlled, but that's the deal. And we are told by the scriptures, this guy was a Jew who was one of these magicians. And he was a false prophet. Now, we're told he was a false prophet, but the key word to focus on there is prophet, okay? He was perceived as a Jewish prophet in Cyprus. And when a prophet is running around telling you what God is saying, and he has the power to produce miracles, what do you do? Do you talk back? Mm-mm. You don't. You don't question a prophet who's got power. I mean, he's a prophet who has power. You don't question him. So Bar-Jesus has worked his way on the island of Cyprus, a pretty small island, into such a power of prominence, I mean, such a position of prominence and power that he is now by the pro-council side. He's in with Rome. He's in with the Jews. He's a great prophet on the island, and he's got power. So he's standing next to the pro-council, listening in to old uh, Saul and Barnabas, and they're sharing the gospel, and he's starting to go, this isn't going to go well. This gospel threatens my position of power. So he gets to the pro-council and he goes, don't listen to these guys. Listen, listen to the prophet. Remember, I got the power. Prophet and power. Listen to me. They're crazy. Ignore them. Folks, whenever you start going into your regular life to be redemptive and to speak redemption, I promise you this, you're going to face opposition. You're going to face opposition. You're going to face opposition for a number of reasons. Primary to those reasons are these. Number one, 
Biblically, we are told we have a spiritual enemy that does not want the gospel to advance into any place because the gospel brings freedom. The gospel we carry is a truth that brings freedom. And then I want that truth, and then I want it to bring freedom. So you are against spiritual powers and principalities in dark places. If you think you're going to step into a redemptive story and go rescue some people and bring it into your life, and that's not going to come with trouble, you got another thing coming. You think the dark forces are going to sit around and go, let's make this easy for them. No! They're going to come at you with everything they got. They're going to turn you and your entire family into monsters and make you feel like you're dying. And you're going to go, God has abandoned us. And that's when you got to remember the Spirit of God sent me. The Spirit of God authors this. And the Spirit of God ain't afraid of these little crazies. And then you got to step in because it's coming. Opposition is coming. Opposition is going to come from spiritual places. And opposition is going to come from physical places. Why? Because, folks, let's face it. The gospel, when it is first encountered, threatens two primary human realities. One, I am the ruler of my world. You don't ask me to dethrone myself from my own throne. That's not a good idea. I want to be the boss of me. I want to be the boss of my destiny. I want to decide. You tell me I got to submit to somebody because they're God. You got another thing coming. And so when the gospel first encounters us, it dethrones us. And nobody likes to be dethroned. No human being, no organization, no person in power likes to be dethroned by anything. And the gospel dethrones us, it always does, because it makes God king. So you should expect when the gospel first goes out, either felt or declared, it is going to at some point inevitably dethrone somebody. And when they get dethroned, they're going to be mad. And they're going to come after you, because it's not the gospel they're worried about. You're the messenger. Kill the messenger, and then the gospel dies too. Second of all, us human beings in the entire universe of all creatures I have ever met in my entire life, we are the most self-deceptive creatures on, uh, that I've ever known. I mean, human beings are so self-deceptive, it's unbelievable. No, I haven't met aliens. I'm just saying hypothetically, of all creatures that I've ever met, human beings are incredibly self-deceptive. We spend our entire lives building up walls around us and resumes and realities. We convince ourselves. We put stuff on ourselves to make ourselves feel and seem and look different so that we can convince ourselves we're okay. Do you know what the gospel does to that? Every time. The gospel is light and we live in darkness. And when light comes into darkness, the first encounter with light when you've been in darkness a lot is this. Ah! And then the second encounter is, ah! And so it, it both blinds and exposes, right? That's what light does when you first encounter it. Nobody likes that. So when you are bringing redemption and the gospel to people and because you've now fallen in love with Jesus over years of being shaped and changed and you just expect everybody should love the light, you ought to read the scriptures. John chapter 1, when the light came into the world, the darkness hated the light and ran from it, right? So look, every time the gospel is encountered as you live it out, inevitably at some point it's going to feel good at first and when it starts exposing anything, people are going to get all mad. I see this all the time. You know, act out kindly and redemptively in someone's life. Draw them in. It's so beautiful. And then the first time you go, you know, and you expose something, I knew it. You're just trying to control me. And then runs off. And then you go, I, I got it. It'll come back around. The gospel's like a hound chasing you down. Freedom's coming. See, we have to realize that opposition is an inevitability whenever we face it. So when we face opposition, spiritual opposition that is affecting human beings around us and causing them to go crazy and nuts and we're like, how do we do this? When we face spiritual opposition, when we face physical opposition, lies and deception and untruths and things in people that are not of God, what should we do when we face this opposition? I love what Paul did. Take a look at this. So verse 9, but Saul, who was also called Paul. Okay, just for a second real quick, side note, but just so we know. He's been Saul all along. Now he's changing to Paul. Thank goodness, because I'm sick of going Saul, who's actually Paul, who was Paul, who was actually Saul. I just don't want to do that anymore. So from now on, it's Paul. You got it? And the reason he's changing his name here is actually very simple. It's not some spiritual thing that God's like, oh, you were horrid Saul. Now you're awesome Paul. That's not what this is at all. He had two names. 
He had, a, he had a Roman name and he had a Jewish name. His Jewish name was Saul. His Roman name was Paul, okay? He was born in Rome, so it was very common to be given two names, a Roman name because Rome was a big deal, and a Jewish name because that's your heritage. He has gone by his Jewish name all along because he was a Pharisee, and then he was in the church. Now he's stepping out of the church world into the real world out there, and he's been called by the Spirit to become a witness to the secular environment, to the Gentile environment. And Paul does not want to be an offense to that Gentile environment before the gospel has a chance to offend them. He wants to be as wonderful to them as can be so the gospel can do the offending. So he switches his name from Saul to Paul. So every time he introduces himself, hi, I'm Saul. You Jewish? Ah, shoot, see, offense. But now he goes, hey, I'm Paul. Nobody goes, ah, you're a Jew, aren't you? Because in this culture, the Gentiles and Jews did not get along. And I think this is a key point to us because contextualization in the areas we live are very important. Once we become Christians, I think we feel like we need to take our Christianity and our churchiness and take it into the real world out there and make them like us. See, we become the offenders. The gospel doesn't have a chance to offend them because by the time we're sharing the gospel, they hate us. I mean, it's so like, okay. So we just, I'm Saul and that's it and I'm Jewish and you deal with it. I mean, in some ways we act like that when what the gospel constantly demands for us is to set ourselves aside for the sake of others, saying, I will become anything for anyone so that the gospel can do the offending. The gospel will be plenty offensive enough. It violates their throne. It violates their hiddenness. It violates their darkness. It's a scary thing, the gospel. At first, it doesn't feel like freedom. It feels like death. And then it brings freedom. But listen, let the gospel do the offending, and you get out of the way as much as possible. You should be as nice as you can be eliminating every possible offensive reality so that you have a chance to actually share the gospel and let it do what it's going to do. It'd be plenty fine. So take a look at what he, what he does. So Saul, also called Paul from now on, filled with the Holy Spirit, I love that, full of God, this is God's working, looked intently at Bar-Jesus, at the guy that's offending, and he said this. You ready for this? So awesome. You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. I love that story. Man. The first time I read that, I'm like, God, I want that power. That's so awesome. Next time someone confronts me with the gospel, I'm sharing the gospel and someone steps in like, I don't think Renault's telling the truth. I think, well, they behave badly or they're doing something they shouldn't do. I'm just going to go like this. You son of the devil, you unrighteous scum, blind, I say. And they're going to walk away blind, scampering away like a small child going, ah! yeah, and people won't mess with me anymore. See, isn't that how that feels? Not how that feels at first. I mean, don't you read passages like this and go, it must have been a unique scenario. I, uh, or, or is it saying that that's what we're supposed to do? That we're supposed to step into a story and whenever confronted by somebody and the gospel and they're doing this and they're behaving badly, that our job is to step into their lives and go, you son of the devil, and produce some horror for them so that they learn not to be offensive to the gospel. You would think so until you understand what's going on here. Because actually, it's exactly the opposite. Folks, this is probably one of the most important things you'll learn in this little passage right here about how we ought to be dealing with the world when we are confronted by opposition to the gospel. You ready? Because you always will be. When you're confronted by opposition from the gospel, either from the spiritual, through somebody, or from somebody just confronting the realities of the truth of the gospel, you must always step boldly into truth and defend truth boldly. That is happening here. You need to step in and say, look, I hear you, I do, but what you are saying is just simply not true. Now that's a simple way of saying it, but it is important not to be drawn into a culture that says love is tolerance. So when anyone is saying anything that's their opinion, whether it's right or wrong or true or not, just kind of be really nice about it and go, well, I, I, I hear you, I feel you, that's beautiful. You believe what you believe, I believe what I believe, it's so nice. Why don't we do that? Why don't we do that? Because folks, the truth that we hold, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that truth sets people free. That truth sets people free. You either believe that or you don't. The gospel is not some neat, warm, and fuzzy spiritual reality. It is the single truth that is redemptive and sets people free. When you hold the gospel truth and you present the gospel truth, it sets things free, right? 
So if you are going at somebody because you want to be right, you ain't setting them free. If, if this is about arguing with them and about proving to them that the gospel's right and proving that they're, they're wrong and you walk away going, <laughs> the gospel won that one, then you've totally missed the boat. When you confront the realities of the spiritual realms against you or people against you, confront them where they're at. Confront the deception in them. Confront the realities that are not producing freedom in them and confront them boldly. Confront the spiritual realms boldly. That is not gonna produce freedom, so that will not be tolerated, right? And you, and you do it in the right context. What was the context here? Bar-Jesus is a prophet on the island of Cyprus with power. Who speaks to Bar-Jesus like, like Paul just did? Nobody. See, Bar-Jesus says what he wants, when he wants, how he wants, and he does it with power. And so he steps next to the pro-council and he goes, hey, don't listen to them. And, and Paul steps in and he goes, brother, I got some news for you. What you are doing is against God. It is wrong. You are a son of the devil. You are doing stuff that is going to doom you and doom your people. And if you are so self-deceived to think that this is actually real, you better wake up. See, when you hear it, he is confronting Bar-Jesus right in the place Bar-Jesus needed to be confronted. For what? Because Paul is afraid of Bar-Jesus and wants to get him out of the pro-council's way so he can convince the pro-council with the gospel? No. Paul loves this guy, I think. From everything I see, Paul is seeing this guy and going, he is so trapped in this horrid false prophet magic, I gotta wake this guy up. So here's how he does it. First he tells him, you're wrong, you're serving the wrong master, you're chasing the wrong deal, and you need to wake up because you're a Jew, you should know better. And then he makes him blind for a time. Now you go think about it in the dark. Does that sound familiar to you at all? Sounds awful familiar to me. Which guy did we last hear about standing against God? confronting everything about God, thinking he was doing a good thing, but he was doing a bad one, chasing after the Christians, trying to kill them, uh, holding his thing up, chasing after, offending God in every way, but thinking it was great, and then he confronted the gospel, and someone stood up that was bigger than him and said, don't you think you're doing this for me, because you're not. You are against me, and it's time for you to wake up, and then made him blind and said, you go sit in the darkness and think about that for a while. Oh, wait, wait. It was Saul who's now Paul, right? The last time we encountered this guy, he was on the road to Damascus. He thought he was doing all the right things, thought he had all the power. He was building his resume. He was sneaking his way into the pharisaical movement to become the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was chasing after the Christians, and he thought he was living for God, and, and it took Jesus showing up and saying, you're against me, bro, and him going, what do you mean? I'll show you blind for how long? For a time, and then he could see again. So you were clued into this because in this moment it says, first Paul confronts Bar-Jesus with the truth, then he makes him blind for how long? It says it in the passage. For a while. Just for a while. And I believe wholeheartedly that this was Paul compassionately doing to Bar-Jesus what Jesus compassionately did to him. Folks, we do need to be bold, no doubt about it, but we need to be redemptive in our boldness. We can't be bold for the sake of the fight. We can't be bold for the sake of the win. We are bold for the sake of freedom, always for the sake of freedom. That's why we're bold. So when you step into living out the gospel, you're bold for the sake of freedom. You're bold and redemptive. You are bold against deception, bold against the enemy, but you are always seeking to set the person free, even if they seem like the enemy. And take a look at the final result. Verse 12 then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. And the story ends. What do we learn from the last moment in the story? When you are carrying the gospel into the obvious world in which you live, and then into the not so obvious world as your influence expands and the gospel expands, and then you face the opposition, and then you confront it boldly but redemptively, and you bring all that about, what do you find? When people see and here they have the opportunity to believe. Our lives must always be a convergence of living redemptively and speaking redemption. 
living redemptively and speaking redemption. If we live redemptively, but we never speak redemption, we never actually share the realities of the gospel because we want to have people feel good with redemptive living, but we don't want to offend them with the gospel, then here's what we're doing. Ready? We are showing people that they should think we're cool. Oh my gosh, Renaud's so awesome. He's always so kind at work and he's so wonderful and he's always giving me stuff and it's so beautiful. He's the best human being I've ever met. Where is the glory? And the glory is right here. Oh no, no, it's about Jesus, I say. And I don't know what that means because I don't know the gospel. So if all I'm doing is living redemptively, I'm just drawing light onto myself and making people think I'm really cool. That's no good, that's dangerous. But if all I'm doing is sharing redemption all the time, but I'm not living redemptively, then I become a hypocrite and a joker. I become a, a someone people I want nothing to do with. Oh, yeah, always come and tell me about Jesus, but have you seen the way they live? Yeah, see, we are called always to live redemptively, miraculously, and to speak redemption. See, we, we, we may not get up like Paul and like, we're blind! And then the pro-council believed. But we have the opportunity to live equally miraculously as Paul did. Sometimes through the supernatural. I believe wholeheartedly scripture says supernatural things will still be part of our story. At times where God needs them to be. And we will be the recipients and effectors of those supernatural things through the power of the Spirit at times. But a much bigger miracle is when we begin to live so redemptively. Stepping into things so beyond the cultural's capacity to understand. That they begin to think of us as utterly different. And they're intrigued. My, my dad was at a meeting with some businessmen recently. Actually, just this last week, and there were a bunch of business leaders, uh, men and women, business men and women leaders, uh, getting together to kind of dialogue about what it would look like to just kind of have the uh, life in your workplace be more uh, tied to uh, your relationship with Christ. And so there were mostly Christian businessmen and businesswomen gathered. So my dad was sharing the story about my wife and I and our incredible uh, uh, opportunity to adopt uh, into our home and the, the convergence of our four uh, kids with our four kids coming together into eight kids. And, and, and then he was kind of sharing about how that's rippled out into the church story. And so he texts me and he goes, hey, how many, how many orphans was it that the church has now brought home? And, and it, so I text back and I say, well, as of November last year at Orphan Sunday, we had, we had 79 orphans from six countries into 36 families in our church that have been adopted. And that doesn't include safe families families and, and foster care. That's just the orphan. But that was in November. There have been more families since then that have adopted and there's more that are in the process. And so it'll be a lot more soon because I'm kind of going, yeah, it's only 79. I mean, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of people that need us. So we need to be adopting more. And so, so I text him that. So I talked to him that night. My dad goes, man, I was talking with those guys and just sharing the story of your church. And, and they were all just blown away. Like in, in one church, you have how many? How, how many kids have been adopted? How, how many? That's, that's unheard of. And I'm going, unheard of? It's pathetic. We haven't even gotten started until we hit a thousand orphans in our story. I'm not even going to stop breathing. I'm going to go. Now, it's not pathetic. It's wondrous. But, but I, I forget that it's so normal around here that I'm like, let's keep going. But for the rest of the world, they're like, that's unbelievable. And that's what our lives should be. Our lives should be unbelievable, miraculous. They should look at the decisions we make in every arena of life, the, the way we love our loved ones, our spouses, our children, our parents, our friends, our, our enemies, the way we deal with our enemies at work, the way we do things. They should look at us and go, you just, what is wrong with you? And then we go, well, that, that's what we call redemptive living, and it's because I've been redeemed. Let me share the gospel with you. And when they see and they hear, as the pro-council did, they have the opportunity to believe and to know. And we are sent by the Spirit of God into our ordinary world every day to live redemptively, to speak redemption. Why? Because we carry the gospel. And the gospel is light that swallows up darkness. The gospel is life that swallows up death. The gospel is freedom that swallows up bondage. The gospel is a truth that sets free. And if we don't carry that every day through our lives and our words into the arenas that we have been given every day, then we do not love. Then we are afraid that the culture 
and its demand for tolerance is what will make us people that love. We do not love people by letting them live in darkness. We do not love people by leaving them in their mess. We love people like Paul did by confronting their deceptions and then giving them opportunity to see even if for a period it means we need to have them blind. But we should always want them free, always. It's not about winning, it's about setting free. And that's what we get to do. Ministers of reconciliation, we are called. Ambassadors of life. Let's pray. God, as we live here in this gathered space, and we prepare now to leave this place and, and go into that world out there that's, that's our world, the one we spend our time in, our homes, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, social networks, the circumstances that you've given us, the relationships you've given us, the resources you've given us, the platforms you've given us, would you remind us that you, God, have sent us to be redemptive and speak redemption into those obvious places first? And then you will expand that as you did with Paul and Barnabas to the proconsuls in our stories. Those who are watching us but we do not yet know, those who are Roman and Gentile, outside of our natural cultural comfortabilities. And you will draw us into their stories and allow us to have influence there for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of freedom, for the sake of your glory. God, may we not become fighters to win, fighters to hold the gospel high and make it the best, but may we become people that seek freedom for others all the time. May we boldly be redemptive, boldly be redemptive as we go into the obvious places and the not so obvious places every day and as we live redemptively and speak redemption every day. God, help us see clearly how easy it is for us to just decide, filled with the Spirit, to go and be redemptive and speak redemption in the obvious places. Would you make it so in us? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.